Thank you very much, Mr. Classified. This is another episode of Canada FM. I am Ted. I am Brian. And as we profile Canadian bands um, that haven't made it that big outside of Canada, we're going to cheat a little bit on this episode as we bring you the first of a two-parter of one of Canada's most seminal bands, April Wine. Now... The reason I chose April Wine, Brian, was actually based on a recommendation for you. You said last season, oh, we should do April Wine. And I was like, oh, okay. So I wrote it down. Well, that was, uh, yeah, That's our friend, here. our long-lost school chum, who I've recently reconnected with in the last year, Travis, who was a big champion of our show right from the jump. He's uh, like, you should try April Wine. I was like, he was always a hip-hop fan. I was like, I didn't think you knew who April Wine was. Well, we've definitely jumped on the April Wine bandwagon this week. Uh and I, uh, we're cheating a little bit because I found out through the research that they did have some songs that charted and did well in the U.S., but those are in the 1970s. This is the furthest back we've gone for the show. Yeah. Um, when you're watching like those infomercials where they profile hits of the 70s or classic rock from that era, I've never seen April Wine. Yeah. On one of those shows. That's why I always assumed that they only had success up here. So it's a bit of a cheat, but at the same time, whatever success they had seemingly has been forgotten about in the U.S. Well, not only that, the um, when people, if you ever talk about two Americans or if anyone ever miss, talks about old Canadian rock, the two bands that always come up are always The Band and Rush, never April yeah. Wine. Like, you look at yeah. that 70s show when they get trapped in Canada by the Mounties. Eric tries to sweet-talk his way out of it by saying, I love Rush. Uh, we just came here to get the beer, and I love Rush. Plug <laughs> <laughs> The one line in uh, that 70s show where they're sitting in the basement, he's like, what do you know about hard times, Anne Murray? <laughs> Canada. <laughs> Uh, but you're right. You don't hear uh, April Wine really be mentioned with that 70s radio rock like they are up here. Yeah. Up here, um, they will still do the county fair circuit. Um, they're still a staple of both um, classic rock radio stations, a staple of what they call whatever radio stations. This is what we were when I worked in Perry Sound, where we'd play April Wine, and then we'd play Katy Perry, and then we'd play ACDC, and then we'd play Lady Gaga. It was, oh, you never know what you're going to get. Well, I mean, um, at some point over their careers, they were all top 40, right? April yes, Wine was exactly. a rock band. They were top 40 in their heyday. They were hit makers regardless of the genre. Yeah. And... Um, so up here, we haven't forgotten about them. And a lot of the songs that we're going to go th over today uh, are still in high demand, in high play on uh, radio stations up here. So while their success did happen outside of Canada, it wasn't sustained like it was up here. Well, they'll still draw a huge crowd and uh, people will still hear, sing their songs wherever they go. Um, after listening to the first eight discs, Brian, uh, how would you describe April Wine Sound to someone who has never heard them before? Um, at first, I thought in their early stuff, I thought they were trying to rip off like a Zeppelin slash like, you know, fog hat type stuff. But then okay. uh, they they're not quite progressive enough to kind of be lumped into any of those other bands. And they're not... They're not as hard to try to get compared to like an Alice Cooper, Black Sabbath type. So they're just kind of like, I don't know, just like da good dad rock. Like not quite soft yeah. like the Eagles, but uh, 
harder than harder than the <laughs> Eagles. Not as hard as like a some of the other ones. I don't know. It's, it's hard. This is dad. This is dad rock. If your dad maybe has a tattoo. Yeah, or Dad Rock, if your dad still goes to the salon to get his long hair kind of straightened with the highlights in it. It's Dad Rock if your dad still rocks a denim jacket. There you go. <laughs> this is the kind of Dad Rock we're talking about today. Hey, Denim Dan, where'd you get the Canadian tuxedo? <laughs> well, let's go over. Let's jump right in. The history of April wine is going to take us back to the late 60s in Waverly, Nova Scotia. So there you go. Tell your buddy... That we're not ignoring the East Coast. We do plenty of East Coast shit. I didn't even know April Wine was East Coast until we did this episode. I assume they were like Toronto or something. I thought Vancouver for some reason. Okay. But no, 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 from Waverly, Nova Scotia. Brothers David and Richie Henman had relocated to the province from Newfoundland where their father got a job at a local furrier. And if you're going to be a rock star in the 1970s and you got a connection to free fur coats, that's a good connection. <laughs> Uh, Richie was a drummer and Dave played the guitar and the two spent hours jamming together throughout their childhood and then they recruited their cousin Jim Henman to join the band on bass and the first April Wine incarnation was completed when they recruited Miles Goodwin on lead vocals and guitar that officially made April Wine the Henmans and Goodwin now, the music scene at this time in Nova Scotia, well, now I am going to diss these coast a little, because by April Wine's own recognition, whatever, uh, they said the Nova Scotia rock and roll scene sucked at the time. But let's be Hard honest. Hard gigs. Let's be honest. Unless you're in Toronto or Vancouver in the 70s, yeah. like, look at Doug and the Slugs. We talked about it. They had to make their own scene, basically. Exactly. Tr Toronto in the 60s and 70s was hopping, so that's why everyone came here. Yeah. And they were having a hell of a time getting uh, representation. So they did what most bands do. They recorded a bunch of demo tapes. And they just sent out packages to any label they could possibly think of. This included Aquarius Records, which at the time had an office in Montreal. So not quite Toronto, but Montreal was happening. Montreal was happening. In you might have heard that label a couple weeks back. They were Serial Joe's label. Yes. Yes. And as Daniel told me, Serial Joe had great success in Quebec. So... Hey, don't forget about Quebec. <laughs> um, now, their management um, agreed that while April Wine showed a lot of promise, they weren't the band that the label was looking for. Unfortunately, the rejection letter that Aquarius Records sent to the members of April Wine came across so nice, they thought that they were signing them. <laughs> They thought it was an acceptance letter, not a rejection letter. So they loaded up the van, and they headed to Montreal to, to get their shit together, to get started. Allow me to slide in one more dig at the East Coast. Is that how they teach you to read out there? <laughs> I'm just kidding. Well, despite the mix-up, the Aquarius Brass were so taken by these eager young musicians who showed up at their door that they decided to sign them anyway. They said, all right, you're here. <laughs> Imagine if that's how how easy it was to get like a an acting job or a book written. It's like here, I just slam the book on your desk. Well, you threw it in my face. Might as well publish it. I like your moxie, kid. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of like with George on Seinfeld, where he uh, he quit and then he just showed up the next day. He was like, I didn't quit. I was just blowing off some steam. <laughs> kind of that thing. Um, and you know what? Aquarius was good to them. Even though they didn't want to sign them, they uh, let them live in a ski chalet 
because, you know, all their other shit was in Nova Scotia. They also helped them book a whole bunch of gigs at a local comedy club so they could kind of hone their craft as they were getting ready to record. And they jump into uh, into the studio for the first album in 1971. Bill Hill would produce the self-titled release. Couldn't find much information on him, so... Whatever you're doing now, Bill Hill, Godspeed. Uh, and it, unlike future April Wine releases, lead vocal duties on this album would be split evenly. Miles Goodwin sang on two tracks, David Hadman sang on two tracks, and Jim Hadman sang on four tracks. So Jim Hadman was kind of the lead singer when his first album came out. Um... But because Goodwin's vocals were attached to the only hit to come from this album, Fast Train, the band elected that he'd just be the official frontman. And, um, yeah, then Jim Henman would leave the band. So I don't think he took too kindly to uh, Miles Goodwin usurping his lead vocalist uh, duties. Uh, they replaced him later, though, with Jim Clench, who would later leave April Wine to join Bachman Turner Overdrive. So that family of Canadian bands was interwoven even back then. Fast Train would reach number 38 on the Canadian singles charts. And number 23 on Chum FM's Top 30 Countdown. And uh, it would later be featured in the Donald Sutherland movie Natural Enemy which was released in 1997. Uh, now, despite the fact that Fast Train was a minor hit, sales for the self-titled release were low, but the labels thought, hey, you know what? These guys had a hit, so we'll let them take another swing at it. Uh, what did you think about... i got to let you know the reviews, mainly from critics at the time, weren't that great, but what did you think of that self-titled release? It was soft. Oh, soft, huh? Soft. S-A-W-F-T. Soft. <laughs> I think, I mean, I think it showed a little promise. Like, Fast Train was a really good song. Um, and that's the thing. Sometimes you just need, it's like, okay, there's, we got something in this mix that we can work with. And it takes some bands a few albums to find their voice. Not everyone comes in uh, right out the gate with a, with a bomb track, you know what I mean? Yeah, so I think that uh, Fast Train was proof putting that there was room to work with them and the room to grow. But yeah. uh, like it was enjoyable, but it just wasn't what they be turned into. Like each passing album got better and better, so I'm excited to keep going through. But this one is just kind of like I listened to one. It, I did one pass. And I'm like that's enough. <laughs> well, you know what I will say that it, they made the right choice with Miles Goodwin. Because the standout tracks yeah. in here are Fast Train and Listen, Mister, yeah. which are the two tracks that he sang on. Those were, like, the only two I really made note of. Um, but, you know, the jams and the instrumental breakdowns on there were cool as well. But it was yeah. a product of its time, and it didn't really break any new ground. But you had a good lead singer. So that's yeah. a start. Step in the right direction. For 1972's On Record, the label hooked him up with producer Ralph Murphy. Now, he would later get inducted into Canada's Country Music Hall of Fame and has written songs for Crystal Gale, Randy Travis, and Shania Twain, among others. And here's a little... Do you want to hear a little trivia here about Ralph Murphy? Okay? He's best known for canceling a show for industry executives in Nashville in 1987. Now, the record label was forced to throw in an unknown and unproven country singer to replace him... At the last minute. 
You know what that singer turned out to be? Uh, I assume it's American? Yeah, it's American. Uh, Garth Brooks. Yeah! Yeah! That was actually just a shot in the dark. <laughs> it was Garth Brooks! <laughs> if you're Garth Brooks, he wowed everyone. There was like a race to sign him. And uh, I'd say he's had a decent career. Just Garth a little Brooks. bit. Yeah, just a little bit. And he's got this Ralph I've Murphy that guy. guy. Cold to uh, to thank for that. He's that's like a Wally Pitt story. Yeah. Now, what's cool about Ralph Murphy here is that um, he was uh, much more evolved as a producer than Bill Hill was. Um, he found he brought the band two cover songs that he wanted them to record as singles, um, and they really changed the path of their career. The first was "You Could Have Been a Lady," yeah. which was a minor hit in the UK for the very funky "Hot Chocolate." I like hot chocolate, uh, but that failed to really have any success in North America. But that would change when April Wine recorded it, as "You Could Have Been a Lady" reached number two in Canada and would become the band's first song to chart in the US, reaching number thirty-two. I love "Could Have Been a Lady." great at first i was just like it's funny I, I almost had this like ball bouncing down the history of music timeline i'm like hey fog hacks called they want their song back and then all the spin doctors or uh these guys could be like hey spin doctors we want our song back because they all kind of sound like each other you think it's a little spin doctor well they're first so this sounds a little april wine-ish but yeah just that style of guitar just that that uh, very 90s guitar but i don't know maybe i'm i was just in a okay I'll have to listen to it again. I didn't. I didn't picture the Spin Doctors, but um, I was just picturing funk. Yeah, it was very, very, very funky. Yeah. Um, as would the follow-up release be a cover of a song written by Elton John and Bernie Taupin, "Bad Side of the Moon." Now, uh, John recorded this. It was the B side to his single "Border Song" in 1970, but he never, he never charted. He never put it on an actual album, just a single. So April Wine took it, and it'd be a number 16 hit in Canada, and it'd find its way uh, to the Billboard charts, reaching number 106. And for me, going into this episode, this is my favorite April Wine song. Oh, yeah? It seems as though I've lived my life on the bad side of the moon. Sturdy your drinks and sickness hill. Oh, yeah, I love this fucking song. It's so funky. It kind of reminds me of a Rare Earth. Do you remember that? I'm like, I just want to celebrate. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, I'll play a little bit. Yeah, I just want to celebrate another day of life. Had my hand on a dollar bill, and the dollar bill blew away. <laughs> oh, that's funky as hell. Yeah, and it was it was it was a time too where funk was starting to build up, and a lot of rock bands were experimenting with that kind of stuff. And uh, that breakdown, this is my life, this is my, I love shit like that. You know me, love the big clapping and the big sing-alongs. Oh, oh, love that song. Oh, yeah. Drop Your Guns, which was written by David Hanman, was also released as a single. So it wasn't just covers that were getting them fame at this time. Uh, that did pretty well too, reaching number thirty-four. <laughs> On the record was April Wine's first bonafide success as it would peak at number 35 of the Canadian album charts and be certified gold. I thought this was a giant step up for oh, the yeah. self-titled album. What would you think? Oh, yeah, same thing. Uh, also, 
I like that song, the opening instrumental track, Farkas, because I kept... Me too, yeah. I, I felt like it was that song, Oh, what a feel. I kept waiting for them to say oh, that. Oh, sure! That's my Crowbar, another yeah. Canadian classic of the time. Yeah. Crowbar, I saw get inducted into the Canadian Songwriters Hall of Fame. When I went oh, really? With, um, Tom to see uh, his uncle's song get in. We saw Robbie Robertson get in. Oh, yeah. Uh, Crowbar was there. Car- they performed it. That's cool. It was awesome. It was awesome. Yeah, yeah. They still got. Uh, they still got it. Their bass player looks exactly like Jackie Earl Haley. <laughs> Poor guy. <laughs> now they're old now. And then there's well, their their lead singer piano player looks like Santa Claus. <laughs> okay, this is a bit of a freak show band, but they can still rock. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, well, what else did you like about this one? You liked uh, that instrumental that sounded like, oh, what a feeling? What else did you like? Um, I also liked, I like Drop Your Guns, Work All Day. It was just, you know, the, the sound was really starting to harden as to what a April Wine album could be. And, yeah. like, not every album's the same. They did deviate a little bit here and there, so it's not like it's the standard April Wine song, but, or sound, but... They were just getting stronger. The songwriting was getting better. The musicianship was getting tighter. And yes. the production just was getting better, too. So the what was the guy's name you said? Um, Ralph Murphy. Yeah, he uh, his thumbprint's definitely more on it than the, that other numb nuts from the first album. Yeah, absolutely. That, that production was super tight. Um, Goodwin's singing got a lot better. Um, and also, I know you mentioned Work All Day. That was one of the songs I had written down from Deep Cuts. <laughs> Uh, but also Carry On. Yeah. I was a big fan of that. Um, some of the tunes I didn't care for were the ones where they were really trying to get, like, White Album Beatles on us. Yeah. Like I had written down Didn't You is, like, kind of like, come on, focus on the funky shit. Yeah. You know what I mean? You don't have to try to be every popular band at the time here. So there are some songs I could have done without, but overall, they're on the right course. Well, that's the thing, right? The, like I said before, the first few albums are still discovering their sound, and sometimes they let some of their influences filter too deep into it to the point where they're almost like ripping it off. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, where am I here? Oh, okay. So, you know, I don't like doing uh, lineup changes a lot of the show. <laughs> it's repetitive. And it's with April wine, we could be at it all day. Yeah. They had a different lineup change every couple of records. Yeah. But I do want to note that after this record, Dave and Richie Henman, founders of the band, they had left. So none of the Henman family that founded April Wine was involved after the second album. Um, and Goodwin was the only founding member that was left. So well, no would, longer in the hands of the Henman family. That would be a trend the whole career of the band. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Mixing it up, but Miles stays. Yeah. Miles stays on lead vocals. So they liked Ralph Murphy, obviously. He found them success for the first time in their career, so they wanted to stick with him, and he produced their 1973 album, Electric Jewels, And in an interesting move, he had Goodwin split lead vocal duties with the newest member of the band, the bassman, uh, Jim Clench. Uh, Three singles would be released from this disc. You had the title track, Electric Jewels, which made it to number 84 in the Canadian charts. Weeping Willow made it to number 40. Weeping Widow's been your 
Lady Run, Lady Hyde. It topped out at number 19. And to promote Electric Jewels, the band embarked on a very intense electric adventure tour. Their goal? To hit every Canadian venue at the time that could seat more than 2,500 people. So they were at it. Um, it also featured a lightning and a punt, lightning, lighting, there we go, and pyrotechnic show that was considered pretty advanced for 1973. So they were starting to turn out all the stops. Um, Unfortunately, this uh, tour didn't really result in much of an increase in album sales, as Electric Jewels would only reach number 75 of the Canadian charts. And although it garnered so-so reviews, Bob Mercero, remember I talked about Bob Mercero in the Sloan episode and his book about the 100 Greatest Canadian Albums? Yeah. Well, he put this one on there. Yeah, uh, number 73. Number 73. Uh, sales were disappointing, but what did you think of Electric Jewels? Um, I love the opening three tracks, the Weeping uh, Widow, just like that, Electric Jewels. I loved uh, Come On Along, and I loved, uh, what was it, the last song, The Band Had Just Begun. I really like that one. Yeah, yeah, that's a killer closer. Yeah, yeah and a, a great bass line on that yeah. one, too. So Jim Clench, a bit of better chops than Jim Henry. <laughs> uh, <laughs> then I know you mentioned Come On Along. Did you get a Rush vibe oh, yeah. from Come On Along? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. When, when did Rush, you have to forgive me because off the top of my head, I can't remember the first Rush album came up. When was that? I want to say 73, but I'm, I'm going to just quickly Google it. It was 73. It was the same year of that release. So you can't really say Rush, you know, they were borrowing from Rush if it was the same time. Give me two seconds here. Uh, yeah. Rush discography. Okay, so, oh, so, uh, their, their self-titled album, Rush, was 74, and then Fly By Night was 75. So this predates Rush. Yeah, but I mean... I th Interesting. It is one of those things. I think Rush had been jamming together for a couple of years, so they, I'm sure they probably crossed paths with April Wine and, like, the, you know, that Toronto Queen Street circuit kind of thing. And, oh, yeah, uh, yeah. So who knows? Maybe they borrowed from each other. Well, we'll get into it a little bit later, but they did tour together. Oh. Uh, during the 70s. So they were contemporaries and uh, friends, yeah. from what I understand. Uh, did you mention I Can Hear You Calling? Yes, I think I did. Yeah, the, I did like the, mandolin, the mandolin and harmonica. Now they're starting to mix it up a little yeah. bit. You know what I mean? It's not just that straightforward guitar rock. And you find that with uh, April Wine. It, it, they, you know, they, they might appear on the onset to be just your average band. But they like to dip their toe in <laughs> little genre here, little genre like there. Who so knows, I thought maybe that, that could cool be too. a uh, tip of the toque to uh, their East Coast roots, you know, with the, the Celtic yeah. kind of stuff and the bluesy kind of stuff. Who knows? We're only three albums in, but I'm definitely uh, on Electric Jewels as my favorite uh, April Wine album to this point. Yeah. That will change as we go forward. <laughs> yeah. But out of the first three, Electric Jewels I thought was a great album. Yeah. I really liked it. So, that touring that I told you about, the Electric Adventure Tour. Didn't result in big album sales, but it did get them some much-needed connections. Um, Gene Cornish and Dino Daniele of the Rascals, good loving Rascals, not Northern Touch Rascals, <laughs> just so everybody knows. Um, they caught their show at Massey Hall, and they liked what they saw. They offered to record a live album for the group. Um, this would end up being their live with an exclamation point. They've got a ton of freaking live albums. Yeah. This is live! 
exclamation point. <laughs> uh, now, you know where they recorded this? The Queen Elizabeth High School Auditorium in Halifax. Really? Yeah. <laughs> like, I get that they'd want to go to Nova Scotia and use the hometown show to... Uh, Pack the place to record and it. get a good reception. Yeah, you know what? Ask your buddy there who's from the East Coast if uh, that's a really good venue and a popular location for touring bands. But you got to remember, too, maybe, like, it was different back then. Like, now, we're spoiled with all the great theaters, especially in Toronto. You could have recorded all these great ones. Sony, yeah. Sony Center is amazing, great acoustics, all these things. But back then, maybe it was just a lack of choice, or maybe they just wanted... That was like their only option because they're like, we want to do a live album with you, but we are we're on a very strict budget. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. Uh, well, it, it didn't really work out the way that they had hoped. When they got into Halifax, a flu bug ran right through the members of the band, and according to Goodwin, the goal was to have the album released by the end of the Electric Adventure tour. So they were really kind of rushing it. They were not happy with the production quality on this album, and they said it sounded like a basement tape. And uh, they weren't really happy with live. <laughs> so I'm going to pronounce it with the exclamation point. Uh, but fans were. They bought it like gangbusters, and it would sell actually better than Electric Jewels sold, uh, reaching gold status in Canada. So just because the band doesn't like it doesn't mean the fans won't. And I resent ne- that because the band's basement tapes is phenomenal. I think what he meant I, by I that was, was oh, okay. <laughs> I was just making fun of his word choice. No, I get it. It's, it sounded probably more like a demo that like bands yeah, would yeah, use when they're trying to get signed or yeah. something. But also, yes, the Basement Tapes is a phenomenal album, but the production quality on yeah. the Basement Tapes isn't exactly stellar. That's it's true. not what it's known for. Yeah. You know, it's known for the songs, not exactly. It does, they do sound like they were recorded in the Basement, yeah. basement Tapes. Yeah. Well, next up for April Wine was 1975's Stand Back, which the band would co-produce along with Cornish and Daniele of the Rascals. They appreciated them uh, bestowing some knowledge upon them. So they said, take it. It's been real, Ralph. We're going to work <laughs> with the Rascals here. Uh, and they gave Goodwin the bulk of the singing duties again. And uh, Jim Clench would only sing one, uh, excuse me, two tracks on this album. Uh, they also tried a weird trick on the song Slowpoke. Now, I like this. I thought it sounded cool. A lot of people didn't. But they slowed down Goodwin's vocals on that song. So it kind of made for a cool effect. I thought it was a cool tune, Slowpoke. So I think that their efforts kind of playing with the production and making your voice sound crazy because you can do it now. Yeah. I think I think it paid off. I thought it was okay. I thought it was like, I would have been interested to hear what the original sounded was if they like, if they have a re-release where you have like the original version then the, or the... Oh, sure. You know what I mean? The whatever. Yeah. Where they always do yeah, that would takes. be... Do a side-by-side comparison. Yeah. That'd be, uh, that'd be kind of neat. I'm sure some um, audio nerds probably already done that. Yeah. Well, you got to think, would you sing differently? Like, if you knew that this song, that your vocals were just going to be slowed right down, would you sing differently? I don't think so, because it kind of defeats the purpose. Like, if I was going to try to uh, sing slower, then to have it slowed down more, then i just sound like I got hit with a trank dart, like Will Ferrell in old school. Yeah, 
But I, I guess the reason I asked that was they didn't slow down like the instruments or anything like that. Like they'd be have to be playing really fast. Yeah. They slowed down the whole track. They just kind of isolated his voice and slowed that down. I think they were just going for that. Was it 75? Yeah, I think they were just going for that psychedelic like. Oh, big time. Effect. And I think it achieved what they wanted to do. It's just uh, kind of a departure. But I mean, there's nothing wrong with you. When you have, you know, 10, 11 songs. You can have yeah. ten normal ones and one little out there track. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that at all. And uh, I'll tell you, Stand Back was a hit machine. <laughs> um, four singles were released, including Come Here the Band, which reached number 29. Don't take too long. I'm waiting with the song. So won't you please be there? Won't you be? I wouldn't want to lose your love, which was a big hit, number 17. I wouldn't want to lose your love. I wouldn't want to lose your love. And oh, what a night. A killer opening track, which reached number 11. But far and away, the biggest hit off of Stand Back was Tonight is a Wonderful Time to Fall in Love. A nice earworm, that one. Uh, this simple little song about summer love would reach number five on the Canadian charts, and it remains a staple of classic rock stations to this very day in Canada. That is the... That was my introduction to April Wine. Whenever I, yeah. my dad would have Oldies 1150 on, you get that yeah, plug rock and roll. Yeah, son of a bitch. Yeah, that freaking <laughs> butt plug. He's like, here's some April Wine. <laughs> Fuck yourself, April. Or, uh, not April Wine. <laughs> rock and Rain Michaels. Love April Wine. Yeah, I go pump some gas right away. <laughs> <laughs> I'm never getting another job in radio. <laughs> um, Stand Back received incredibly positive reviews from fans and critics alike. It would become a landmark album for the Canadian music industry, too, as April Wine would become the first ever Canadian band to, re- to achieve platinum sales, and Stand Back would go on to get double platinum status. So this was... This was the album that made April Wine. What'd you think? Loved it. Um, yeah. That that song will ever be, you know, tattooed and like anyone who grew up listening to Oldies 1150, you know, in yeah. the Hamilton area or just any, I mean, there's oldies stations across the country. Any, like that is just tattooed in your our DNA. The song is so catchy, yeah. so good. And you can't help but smile. Even if you're sad and single like myself, it's still a lovely song. You know, it's interesting when you, you talked about that, about being an oldies 11 favorite hit. Um, a great Canadian movie, I don't think we've ever mentioned on this show, is um, uh, Real Time with Jay Baruchel and Randy Quaid. And um, it takes place in Hamilton. I think they mentioned the hammer once. Yeah, the, the opening scene, there's like a radio announcer. He's like, it's a cold yeah. day in the hammer. It's going to drop to whatever kind of thing. But there's so many little things they do. As someone who grew up in Hamilton in that movie, uh, watching that movie, there's so many little things they do that make it feel like Hamilton. Yeah. 
and well, like it takes place in like mid March, where like the snow is kind of melting, but it's still not quite Very spring cold. yet. You know what I mean? And it's really wet everywhere because yeah. everything's <laughs> melting. You know, like that's that's kind of uh, like how Hamilton kind of feels all the time. Sometimes even <laughs> in the dead of summer. Um, and then the other cool thing was the soundtrack. Because as they're driving around in this movie, they are listening to like a, kind of an oldies 1150 radio show. Yeah. And they play uh, Sweet City Woman by the Stampeders. Yeah. They play Fly By Night. I believe Fly By Night by um, Rush. Uh, Rush. Is it Trooper that does one for the money, two for the show? I don't know. Three for the lady on the radio. <laughs> I should know. I think it's Trooper. They play that, and um, but I don't think they play any April Wine in it. That's surprising. Yeah. So you can, you know, if we were to do like a, this is the sounds of Hamilton kind of uh, compilation. Yeah. I, I I'd throw on uh, tonight is a wonderful time. Um. But yeah, like the I really liked. What is it? I think it was. Not for you, not for the rock and roll and highway hard run. I really like those ones. And the two, because there's two, wouldn't want your love and wouldn't want to lose your love. <laughs> there is, I know, that got confused. But those are both good. It's just the whole album, top to bottom, is just solid. Now, normally when I do these uh, like little reviews, I like to write down my picks for the deep cuts to keep up with the other Brian. But when I was listening to it, uh, I realized I was like writing down every single track. Yeah, it's, this thing is just a solid... This is the first one where there's like no skipums in the bunch. Even Slowpoke, yeah. I never skip it. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a great album. A little bit of blues here, a little bit of prog rock there. Um, it usurps Electric Jewels. That didn't take long. <laughs> <laughs> it didn't have a very long run at the top of the list for me uh, as my favorite April Wine uh, April Wine album. So this album of a very 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 high regard. Uh, let's move right into the next release in 1976. The whole world's going crazy, where Miles Goodwin extended his duties beyond lead singer and principal songwriter to producer. This is a theme that we've uh, come across a lot this season, uh, especially with Sloan and Marianne's Trench and um, The Hallucination. Yeah. Uh, Canadian bands taking their work into their own hands, Blue Rodeo, uh, and producing their own shit. Yeah. And April Wine got into it here. Um and that's something I think that when when you feel capable of, I think most Canadian bands should do it because it turns out some of the best results. Well, that's the other thing, too, is um, when you have a good handle on what your band is, you have a good handle on what the sound you're going for is, and you have enough albums under your belt, mm-hmm. sometimes a producer can also become just someone in the way it's basically the label trying to like justify spending this money so they're trying to get their fingers in in your face and telling you what to do where it's like listen guy why don't you just go sit in the corner collect your paycheck and go eat some cheetos you know what i mean basically you'll get the the the, the whole hey you know you're not quite ready there kids you know what i mean uh we'll show you how to make an album yeah yeah and you'll and that's one. They want to get a hit. They want to get hits out of you. They want to sell records. And that's and one thing if you're like Serial you Joe, fourteen years old, fifteen years old, not knowing what the hell you're doing in a studio. But <laughs> when you're in your twenties, I assume they're probably like mid to late twenties by this point. I didn't check their ages. No, They've it's... always looked kind of old, but everybody <laughs> in the seventies looked old. So uh, what do I know? Um, but also, bands in the sixties and seventies seem to start so young. They probably had four albums under their belt by the time they were like twenty-five. To be perfectly honest, but either way. <laughs> Um, but yeah, you, uh, they got three albums under their belt, going under their fourth. 
I think they knew what they were doing, especially with like the how good this one was. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I think you're right. And I think that it was actually a trend that we'd see continue onward because I don't believe they really, they, they had a co-producer a little bit later, but Goodwin for the majority of the rest of the albums, at least we're going to cover today, was the guy yeah. in the producer's chair. So it was a sign of things to come. And I think you're right. I think that, you know, let the band have full control over what they want to put out there into the world. Um, and this album sold really well because people, the, the popularity from Stand Back was still there. And people were clamoring for more April wine. In fact, um, The Whole World's Going Crazy became the first album in Canadian history to reach platinum status based on advance sales alone. Wow. People were that eager for more April wine. And that would spend two weeks on top of the Canadian album's charts. It was the first number one hit record. The album would feature a few guest performers, including guitarist Frank Marino, from the band Mahogany Rush on the song So Bad. And I wasn't aware of this, but uh, people consider Marino, and this is like critics across the world, to be the most underrated guitar player of the 1970s. He gets really? comparisons sometimes to Jimi Hendrix. Yeah, so I didn't know anything about Mahogany Rush until we started covering this album. Um, that might be a bit of a deep dive for us yeah. on a future episode of Canada FM because I didn't know that we had this guitar virtuoso uh, <laughs> coming out of Canada. You know? Uh, I know we had, like, the greatest, greatest drummer and bassman uh, over there in Rush, but uh, no disrespect to Alex Lifeson. He's awesome, too. Yeah. But, you know? Uh, I didn't know that we had this guy. Three singles would be released from this album, including Like a Lover, Like a Song, which reached number 49. Oh, Love, which is a killer opening track that reached number 33. And by far the runaway hit on this album was the title track, The Whole World's Going Crazy, which peaked at number five on the Canadian charts. Yeah. The whole world's going crazy. Did uh, that train keep riding on the whole uh, the whole world's going crazy for you? I think so. I think they got a little harder. Because um, some of those. It's funny because my, my first comment, you said they got a little harder. My first comment was it didn't rock as hard as Stand Back. Well, I think the singles did. <laughs> I think the okay, singles okay, did. Yeah. Sorry. I misspoke. Yeah. But uh, it's hard to say. How do you feel? Do you think this is better or do you think this. I I thought it was a solid release. Yeah. I don't think it's better than Stand Back. I don't think it's better than Electric... Um, not Electric Avenue. Come on, Ted. Electric Jewels. Electric Jewels. Electric Jewels. <laughs> oh, short-term memory. Killing me. Um, short-term memory. Killing me. Um, short-term memory. Killing me. Um, hey, Teddy, two times. Get with it. Let's <laughs> try to do a thing. That's an old Carl Ryder joke. He's like, oh, the doctor says I'm having issues with short-term memory. The doctor says he just keeps repeating. Did you see uh, on Instagram this week, Chevy Chase posted this video where it's, it's, it's him holding this. It's doing like a thing that they did in, um, oh, what's that British Christmas movie that I love? The Tony Curtis. Love Actually? Yeah, it's the one. Not Tony Curtis. Yeah. yeah it is Tony Curtis. <laughs> Tony Curtis Sorry, isn't in Love Actually. Randall Curtis is the director. I think that's oh, his name. Oh, okay. And he okay. directed Pirate Radio and 
But the, you know the scene where the guy's dropping the cue cards? Um, yes. So Chevy Chase did a bit. It's like, you think just because you turned 70 that you're getting senile. And he started dropping the cards, but he was holding up that first one. So you couldn't ever yeah. read what he was doing. Well, the, 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 the Rock posted something similar to that a few weeks ago. And it was just this big muscle guy that said, like, everyone thinks guys with muscles are idiots. And he does the same thing. Oh, okay. He drops them from behind so instead of going to the front. Is so. this going to be the new internet trend bit? <laughs> I, I just think Chevy's ripping off a popular bit. Yeah, probably. <laughs> anyway, getting back to uh, the whole world's going crazy. No, I, I thought it was a solid release. I just didn't think it was as good as the previous two. Yeah, I appreciate just... the type... Oh, sorry. I just, um, like, I loved Rock and Roll Woman. That was another one that wasn't a single. That uh, was that really was good. good. Song, yeah. It just, it wasn't the endless hit parade that the the previous album was. And I think this one had, a, not many, but a couple more skip-ems. But uh, it's still enjoyable. I could, I could put it up and, like, listen yeah, to the whole I, thing without skipping any. I, but it's just, there's not, a, there's, there is a couple that you're like, you don't have to listen to it. Yeah. They get into those slow ones yeah. every now and then. You know, it's like when we were talking about Blue Rodeo. They would they would hit a wall where they, you know, Keeler would bring in a ballad and it wasn't lost together or uh, or hasn't hit me yet. And you'd be like, okay, all right, all right, all right. Wake me up from this. You know what I mean? It would just be kind of the same thing over and over again. And they, they do that too. You know what I mean? Yeah. The ballads aren't always my favorites. Yeah. Uh, the songs that were my favorites on here, I like the funky instrumental, We Can Be More Than We Are. Uh, the old time rock and roll on Kick Willie Road, yeah. and likewise, big fan of rock and roll woman, and um, the closing uh, title track for this one, "The Whole World's Going Crazy." I love that. I wrote it sounded like a juiced up version of "Bad Bad" Leroy Brown. I could see that. Yeah, I think he even makes like a reference to it. He's like, he like to rub his diamond rings and everybody, <laughs> something like that. Yeah, he makes he makes a reference to it. So good, a good album. But not a great album. Did you see that the, they did a set like a different, different song tracks for the U.S. release? Yeah, well, I think they only flipped the first two tracks. Wasn't that it for the U.S. and U.K.? No, on the U.S. Uh, release, there's a song called "Child's Garden," and yeah, "Child's Gar- Children's Garden's on this. I listen to "Children's Garden." I don't see it. Like I'm looking at the track. Maybe it was on a different album. It was because also Marjorie. Is on here, and uh, uh, no, that's the only one. Uh, those are the only two because Marjorie appears somewhere else, I believe. Unless I'm thinking of a different song, but maybe those were outtakes that they. Because yeah, the Canadian release has nine. This one has ten. I'm just trying to see. Yeah, so they could have they could have added a track from another release. Yeah, I listened to the Canadian one. Yeah, same. Or whatever's whatever's on Spotify. In fact, I I didn't mention this before. I worked mornings this week, so I was at work at 3.30 every morning. And um, it's a big rush between 3.30 and 6.30 at my job. But at 6.30, the uh, workday falls off a cliff a little bit. So you get a lot of downtime. So I was pumping out two April Wine albums a morning while I was working on this script. So I, it was a good way to spend my day listening to April Wine very early in the morning before most people are even up. I've had to, uh, my knee is completely messed up right now. And so I've had to go mm-hmm. start at physio. So I've been working out all morning from like seven to eight. I was I was averaging an April Wine album and like maybe an extra track. So I, I basically got them all in Monday to Friday. You may just be your knees all messed up. 
Well, I am, for once, am in the uh, Brian Last group of injuries. <laughs> I've had a horrible neck and shoulder pain for the last year. And I thought it was just going to go away, you know, like, because I was going to the gym a lot last year. Yeah. So I thought I just overdid it. Uh, and it hasn't gone away. So on Friday, I'm getting x-ray and ultrasound on my uh, neck and shoulder, my left shoulder. You may have noticed I've been holding it. Uh, I'm going to take this moment before we get into the album number six to go take a pain pill because... It hurts right now. The band's sixth album, Forever For Now, would be released in January of 1977. And again, Goodwin was the producer, and his goal for this release was to expand the band's sound. So that's why on this album, you can hear elements of country, you can hear elements of Latin music, and as well as blues, which they dipped into before. Um, as per usual, most of the songs of this album were written by Goodwin, but the song Come Away was a contribution from Montreal singer and songwriter George Bowser. And George Bowser would go on to kind of a cult following in Canada. He's one half of the comedic music duo Bowser and Blue. And the only thing I remember about Bowser and Blue is that they did a Christmas special every year on the Comedy Network. I think it was the same one, that they just played it every year. <laughs> and uh, I didn't know anything else about these guys. They had a song, and the guy goes, All right, this is a sing-along song. He had like kind of a... It sounded like he had like a, a British accent or Australian accent, but it might have just been like an East Coast accent. Yeah. And he's like, it's called Hey Santa. And he goes, like, Hey Santa. The whole crowd goes, Hey Santa. And he goes, Where's my fucking bike? <laughs> and that's the whole song. That's all I know of it. And uh, you think it's going to be so wholesome, and he's just cursing the whole time. Uh, <laughs> that's Bowser and Blue. I, I just remember that memory for the comedy network. I just like the of name. Of course, they, ble they bleeped out fuck. They didn't keep fuck in there. I just like the name Bowser because it always think, makes me think of my dad. Whenever he, whenever he uh, thought a, a girl was ugly, he's like, oh, that real Bowser. <laughs> oh, it sounds like your old man. <laughs> now, the other song that wasn't quite theirs was um, the song Hard Times. Uh, Goodwin actually reworked the song Big Bad John that was originally written by country music legend and sausage pitchman Jimmy Dean. Um, <laughs> we talked about Jimmy Dean all before. When he, he had the Jimmy Dean Lunchables, which was just like five pounds of meat on a cracker. He's like, it's not a lunch, it's not a lunch. <laughs> now, I love the, I love the old Big Bad I know the obesity in the southern U.S. Oh my God! I think I think I told I think I said it in the last episode. I don't remember which one it was. We were talking about Jimmy Dean and his weird lunchables. I think it came with like a pouch of gravy. Oh my God! That you can heat up and pour on top of this meat mouth. You know, I'll never forget. <laughs> I know you and Jake were veterans of Florida by the time you were kids because you guys went like every yeah. summer. I didn't go until I was like 22 in college, uh, 21, 22. And the first time I went to Florida, Jake's parents took us to a diner. And the diner was great, but then we tried grits. Like, it tastes like sand with cheese on it. I don't know why people I, like grits. I, I, I've never had a grit. Grits look gross. It looks like a pile of mush. Yeah. Um, now, you know where I would try grits is if I ever go to Louisiana. Because Guy Fieri has gone to some restaurants in like Louisiana and New Orleans, and they'll serve shrimp and grits. Uh. And it goes through this whole thing where they're adding all these spices to the shrimp, and the shrimp just keeps looking better and better, <laughs> and the shrimp looks outstanding, and then they pour the shrimp on this pile of mush. <laughs> this disgusting pile of mush. <laughs> like, 
Why did you do it's that? It's like taking a, a great a great meal and it's like, hey, you want to eat this? Yeah. And just throw it right in the toilet. <laughs> but hey, you're braver than me. You tried a grit. I think I got three bites in. I was like, nah, Bush League. <laughs> like, that's the right last staple. Just throw a napkin over top. I did. I could not finish it. Yeah, no, I, I do remember going to Atlanta once, and there was this intense-looking dude, and he looked like your, um, just your stereotypical hillbilly. And I remember I got up to go to the washroom, so I left our table, and I passed this guy because he looked intense. And the server was at his uh, table. And you know what he said to her? What? Y'all got grits. <laughs> <laughs> just remember that. Like, oh, shit. Don't fuck with this guy. I'm just, grits. I'm just picturing this guy. He's like, y'all got grits? Yeah, yeah. Want you to smoke a cigarette, ash into the grits, and give it to me. <laughs> That's good. Evening. Good lord. <laughs> but anyway, getting back to Hard Times. Hard Times is a rewrite of Big Bad John. And Big Bad John's a great song if you ever get to listen to it, the original J- Jimmy Dean version. Uh, but Goodwin changed the lyrics around, so instead of it being about a mythical beast man... A Brian Lastesque man, like yourself. <laughs> um, it was uh, kind of social commentary of the mid-70s, so yeah. I switched it around. But it's still a fun song. It didn't uh, feel only... like an April Wine song, that's for sure. Oh, yeah. Well, I told you. He wanted to do something different on this album, and that's a different one. Mission accomplished. <laughs> yeah. Well, only two singles were released from Forever For Now. The title track made it to number 45 of the Canadian charts. It seems you're back song you won't dance with me proved to be a massive hit i peaked at number six in the canadian charts you wish i dropped it you wish i dropped it now what am i going to do when you won't dance it reached a platinum level of sales for the single and that was a big achievement for them because both the single for You Won't Dance With Me and the album Forever For Now, they reached platinum the same week on the Canadian charts. So people were digging that song. I'm going to go first on my thoughts, though, on Forever For Now. Go for it. I thought this was a weird album. It was. If I were to describe it, it'd be weird. It's not bad, but it's weird. It's very mellow. The first half comes off like their usual fare. But then the second half takes a crazy left turn into the world of experimentation. Probably their weakest album since their debut, but having said that, I appreciate their attempts to diversify. I really dug the funky organ on Hollywood. Holly, by the way, spelled like Holly at Christmas. It would like, would you, could you, should you? Yeah. Not Hollywood. Um, I like the Latin vibes on Mama Lay. And I wrote, I even used an expletive to describe my love of this song. I fucking loved I'd Rather Be Strong, which might be my favorite April Wine song to this point. Loved it. It reminded me of uh, Follow Your Daughter Home by the Guess Who. That kind of light summer vibe. Of course you like that song because you always wish you could be strong. You are not a strong man. (laughs) How dare you? I'm just kidding. Insulting. Uh... Anyway, I, even though Hard Times came off as a parody, I liked that too. But it was yeah. it was odd. I think your opinions kind of line up with mine. Yeah, the first few songs, they, they looked like they were trying to go back to the 60s a little bit with that kind of like uh, 
beachy yeah. kind of like 60s pop and then it just kind of went it's like they flipped the switch halfway through it's like all right we're going into 70s rock now <laughs> and uh yeah so i thought that was interesting that they the songs were never just consistent or at least those first few but then i really liked hollywood uh the singles were good and you're right I'd rather be strong and hard times as much as I'm like sitting. I was cleaning last night. I was sitting there. I'm yeah. like, let's cleaning the hard times. I'm like, I want to hate this song, but I don't because I, like, <laughs> I just it's interesting. It's like, it's so different that you just can't not like it. Have you ever had you heard the original Big Bad John? No, I'm going to check it out after we finish recording. Yeah, that's just a fun. It's, it's Big Bad John is what country music used to be. I'm going to drop a clip in right now. Big John. Every morning at the mine you could see him arrive He stood six foot six and weighed 245 Kind of broad at the shoulder and narrow at the hip And everybody knew you didn't give no lip to Big John Big John, Big John Give a little taste there There you go, attaboy Jimmy Dean <laughs> well, that's what, that's what Damn good sausage the cube, you remember in uh, in Ray at the beginning where Ray Charles tries to join that country band? He's like, I love country music. I love the stories. Yeah. That's that's what country music used to be. They tell these uh, these old like mythical tales. Yeah. And that's big big bad John's a, a classic for that. Yeah. Yeah. So I think we're in a agr- uh, Forever for now is weird. <laughs> weird with there a beard. Two things on this show that are weird: the Juno Awards. And forever for now by April Wine. There you go. That's our pillars of weird. That's the thing. Like, um, like we're not even saying, like, you know how with the, the previous album, we were kind of like, eh, it's good. It's, this one, it's like we have no whether it's good or not just because it's so weird and different. We can't say if it's a oh, bad album or a good album. But I think the whole the whole world's going crazy was better than this album. Yeah. Oh, like I, I said, I this, is, this is probably their weakest album since the release, but I like... The songs on it. It's a weird. I think the first half of it's kind of boring. Yeah. It doesn't really get interesting until they start getting with the weird songs. Yeah. Then it's then you're engaged. Yeah. So, you now this if they I think if the whole album was more like the second half. I'd like it a lot more. Anyway, while touring in support of Forever for Now, April Wine would play their biggest shows of their career. On March 4th and 5th in 1977, they were set to co-headline a pair of shows at Toronto's El Macambo with a band known as the Cockroaches. Now, the Cockroaches turned out to be a pseudonym for the Rolling Stones. Ah. And uh, it wasn't a very well-kept secret. (laughs) So massive crowds turned out to see the Stones, and they got April Wine at the same time. And uh, they saw this as a moment worth preserving and a bit of a step up from recording at a high school for the first live album. So it became the live album in 1977, live at the Alma Combo. So it was a pretty big, uh, big gig for them. 77 would also be a landmark year as uh, the band would add Brian Greenway as a third guitarist and co-vocalist and making the band a quintet for the first time ever. Really? And uh, also, Miles Goodwin was able to switch to keyboards on some of their um, more ballady tunes. So they kind of had a full fleshed out sound. I remember when I first got into music, and it's funny because we, we didn't grow up listening to country and western at all. You know what I mean? We grew up listening to like punk and alternative rock. Yeah. 
I always thought it was weird when a band had three guitars. I always thought that that was like overkill. You look at some like country groups, they got like five guitar players. You know yeah. what I mean? But like in the world of rock and roll, do you remember? I just never got three guitars. Do you remember when we watched Blues Brothers 2000 and they it gets to the final battle of the bands and you oh, get oh they got a guitar section. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Like the the Louisiana Gator Boys had Eric Clapton, um, uh, what's his face, uh, Skunk Baxter from Jeff uh, Skunk Baxter from Steely yeah. Dan. Uh, oh, and Allman Brothers too. Right. Uh, who yeah. else was in there? I'm trying to remember. Uh, you had J- uh, Jimmy Vaughn, right? Uh, Stevie Ray Vaughan's brother. Yeah. Obviously, BB. Yeah. Oh, um, Bo Diddley. Yeah, Bo Diddley and his like really cool like cigar box guitar. Yeah. Um. It was, it was, yeah, it was their own guitar yeah, section. Like, the they had the horn shit? section. And then I forget the drummer. The bass guy was Willie, Willie Weeks. I can't remember the guy's name. But the drummer and the bass man really had to hold down that uh, rhythm section. Yeah. Because they're getting drowned out by horns and all these guys demanding guitar solos. And then you've got the vocal section. We had like Isaac Hayes and Gary U.S. Bonds and all Coco's, kinds of... Was it? Travis Tritt. He yeah, was in the... That's right. He had a Gator Boys. Yeah. And Clarence, Clarence Clemens was part of the, the horn section. He was part of the horn section. Yeah. Holy cow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that'd be a tough job to be a bass player or a drummer in that band. All those songs have to be at least like eight minutes long so everyone can get their fair shake. <laughs> Did I have Steve Winwood on keyboard still? Yeah. <laughs> I forgot about that. <laughs> yeah, because it's weird. You listen to this blues song and suddenly like the synth keyboard comes in. Yeah, it's like... <laughs> you get Steve Winwood's soulful vocals, but still, you get the weird keyboard coming out of nowhere. But yeah, yeah. I was—I remember watching that movie. I saw that movie twice in theaters, and I'm like, I still can't get over it. Now I think it's great. I used to—I used to hate that song, but now that I've gotten more into blues, I love it. Well, but the Blues Brothers still should have won that battle of the bands. Oh, 100%. percent. Love, love turned was so light, tight. They turned it loose, and these guys are playing like, like granted, like the talent on display is phenomenal, but they're doing like a slow. Slug, depressing. It's called How Blue Can You Get? Yeah. Yeah, like, come, come on, give some credit to the Blues Brothers who are lighting the place on fire. But that's the thing, right? That's that's the typical traditional blues, whereas the Blues Brothers did more of like a jump blues kind of style. But the, the, yeah, yeah, that place was jump blues, Chicago rocky. blues, they call it as well. Oh, uh, yeah. Really? Oof. Chicago blues, jump blues, kind of the same deal. Interesting. I, I, got, I got those references from Dan Aykroyd. Whenever I watch an interview with him talking about the Blues Brothers, <laughs> I know you're not a big Rogan guy, but if you ever want to be interested, uh, listen to him on Rogan, he gets way too deep into aliens and the, the spirituality you know and like the ghosts and everything. It's a good listen. I have only watched two full episodes of the Joe Rogan podcast. One was with Daryl Davis, who was the jazz musician, a black guy, black jazz musician who got all those people to quit the Klan because he was fat. He's just a fascinating guy. And the other was Dan Aykroyd. Oh, okay. <laughs> so I have watched that episode just because, just because like Aykroyd, he does do a lot of interviews. But like when I was into podcasting, I guess he just wasn't doing interviews then. So like he's done a Mark Maron since, but he hadn't done a Mark Maron at that point. And so I just wanted to hear him tell his story because he's got a lot of good stories to tell. Yeah. Another Canadian treasure, Dan Aykroyd. Uh, all right, where was I? Got off of Dan Aykroyd. Oh, the touring! The touring in 1977. That's it. Remember I told you that they toured with Rush? Yes. Well, they toured for Rush in 1977. They opened for them for a whole bunch of U.S. shows. Um, The Stones liked them so much for the El Macambo gig, they got April Wine to open up for them in the U.S., so those must have been huge. The other band, which 
It's kind of weird, but kind of works. Sticks. Been open for sticks. I can see that. Yeah, me too. I think that's a good fit. Yeah, because Sticks is very AM radio. Yeah. And while there's a lot more diversity at play with April Wine, they're very AM radio yeah. too. Oh, yeah. So it is a good fit. All right, let's talk about First Glance. First Glance was released in March of 1978. Miles Goodwin oversaw production on this one, and it was another hit machine. Yeah. Four singles would come off of this one. You had Get Ready for Love, which peaked at number 79. No, Right down on top of me, which made it to number 46. It's coming right down on top of me. I'm getting so I can't hardly breathe. Rock and roll is a vicious game, which is my favorite song off a of first glance. Isn't it a pity? Isn't it a shame? That topped out at number 27, but by far and away, the biggest hit from this record was Roller. Roller is a simple little song about a high-rolling woman from Los Angeles that Miles Goodwin is very excited to go meet up with. Um, it would become the band's first song in six years to chart in the U.S. So all that touring with Sticks and the Stones. Hey, Sticks and Stones, look at that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that would pay off. And uh, it's actually got a station in Flint, Michigan to thank for this. This one little rock station. They liked the song. They played it all the time. And they got the word out. So then Detroit stations took it. And it well, went across the Midwest. And that's how the song built. That's, so, very, similar, that's very similar to the Rush story. Uh, Rush had Working Man out. And it was, yeah. it was doing well here. But it was a Cleveland station that, you know, Working Man fits very well in Cleveland so they got it and then like within hours the radio stations were jammed like what was that song is that a new Zeppelin song yeah. what was that and everyone was going nuts for it but they didn't even have a, a record out yet they just had a single and yeah. so it's that's that's what got a lot of interest in Rush in the States do you remember that track it's always from, the Midwest uh, that seems to be the, the the breakers at least back in the 70s that, well that story reminds me of do you remember that like interlude on uh <clears throat> Enter like the 36 Chambers by Wu Tang Clan, where the guy's like calling into a radio station and goes, I need to hear that new Wu Tang man. Yeah. Again and again. Again yeah. and again. Again and again. I guess that's kind of what it was like. Yeah, that's uh, that's the intro to, um, uh, what's it called? Not bring. Um, no, it's the. What the frick's the single in that one? The. Oh my god. I'm having a brain fart. I haven't listened to hip hop in so long since all of it rock. Uh, oh my god. The What's the single? Protect your neck? Yes, thank you. It leads right into protect your neck. There you go. That's going to bug the crap out of me. <laughs> All right. Well, you know what? It wasn't just a minor hit in the U.S. It was a bona fide hit in the U.S. And you get to number 34 on the charts. Yeah, because she's a roller. It's been featured in American movies like Joe Dirt, Machine Gun Preacher, The Heat, not Heat, The Heat, yeah. and Grown Ups 2, and uh, was also on shows like Freaks and Geeks and The Americans. So it was also in that's game a song night. that's still thriving. 
Game Night. I left Game Night out. Yes. Sorry about that. You know what? I was getting with these movies that Roller had appeared in. And it was just getting so much that I think yeah. that Game Night was the last one listed on Wikipedia. So I was like, eh, this is enough. But actually, <laughs> I need to put every single one down. We we hadn't talked about bands in music and or, uh, bands me- music featured in movies and TV since the Connell and Crush. This is one of the first ones where there's actually like a decent decent amount here. Like they were because a lot of a lot of the stuff would be like on Canadian shows yeah. or lesser known stuff. Like, yeah, yeah, kind of like, oh, and uh, Trouble Charger had quite a, a couple of Yeah. They are in Do Where's My Car and stuff like that. So. Yeah, April Wine was featured in uh, Supernatural, but that makes sense because that's like the whole, the whole soundtrack is like that type of 70s, 80s rock. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, if it had success in the U.S., Roller. It, of course, had success in Canada, but not much more. Only uh, 10 spots higher. Number 24 is where it peaked out of the Canadian singles charts. This album would be a big success on both sides of the border, reaching gold status in Canada, comma, and charting at number 114 in the U.S., where it would also achieve gold status. Now, as tight as this album gets, I was writing down the tracks, and I realized um, at about track four, I started writing everything down. It was just like with Stand Back. Yeah. I was getting the same vibe from it. Uh, there's some Southern Rock happening here. I got some big Doobie Brother vibes. <laughs> and I got some big Foreigner vibes off this album. And I uh, called it 70s Guitar Rock at its finest. What'd oh, absolutely. Think? Yeah, you took the words right out of my mouth. It's just, it's uh, top to bottom, another one you, you, you don't skip. Even the slow ones, like Rock and Roll is a Vicious Game, you don't skip that one. Yeah, 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 yeah. They delivered on uh, all the tracks on this album. But, uh, what were your some big B-sides since I didn't name any? Um, it's hard because... Hey, you don't have any. That's okay, too. No, yeah. Like, they're, they're all just very enjoyable. I'm going through the whole thing. I'm like, I would just play this whole thing top to bottom. I've listened yeah. to this like three times this week. Oh, wow. Just top to bottom, there and I'm skipping. Well, that cross-border success for April Wine, it would continue on their eighth album and the final album that we're going to cover on this episode of Canada FM, because, yeah, there's part two coming up next week. You better <laughs> believe it. Um, Harder Faster was the eighth album. Goodwin got some help producing this one from Nick Bayagona, a friend of the band's from the Maritimes. And thanks to a U.S. tour with those sons of bitches in Nazareth, because you know that's not Hair, hair of the Dog. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Play a little. Ah, yeah, that was my little joke. (laughs) This album performed even better than First Glance did down south, reaching number 64 on the U.S. album charts and again achieving gold status. Um... I was going to say, for Nazareth, because of that song, Hair of the Dog, um, I remember like a week we were getting news releases in our newsroom um, from the police of two different guys with the first name Nazareth who had like were wanted on like uh, like assault charges or robbery charges, right? I was like, I had never heard the name Nazareth outside of that band or <laughs> the band or the, or the wait by the band. I pulled into Nazareth. I guess a biblical thing. Yeah, I was going to say, Nazareth. the Bible? Nazareth. Have you ever heard it in the Bible? <laughs> <laughs> you heathen? Jesus, Nazareth. I know. I know, I know, I know. I know it's biblical. Um, 
but the, these two guys named Nazareth. And so our one news guy was like, yeah, they're, they're tough guys. They, they probably named him after the band. Now you're messing with a son of a bitch. They wanted the kid to be tough. So they named him Nazareth. And I wonder, I wonder if that's a thing. I mean, there's that whole boy named Sue thing, but. Could be, but Nazareth's way cooler sounding. That's true. Sue. Yeah, Nazareth, you sound awesome when your name's Nazareth. Yeah. I wonder if they wanted to make their kids the toughest sons of bitches in the room. Because the problem is, if you name a boy named Sue, if it's a fat kid, it's all just pig jokes. They'd be like, Sue-wee! <laughs> Didn't even think of that. So if, if, <laughs> if you're going to name a boy named Sue, make sure you get him in the gym at the age of, like, five. Stay, keep him trimmed. <laughs> just avoid that one insult that might come his way. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Plus, if he's, if he's a it. jack kid, no one's going to beat him up. It's like, call no me Sue. Mess with him. Break your face. That's right. That's right. Um, in Canada, uh, this would also be a big hit, Harder Faster, uh, become their first platinum album up north uh, since the whole world's gone crazy. So they're back on the map. They're doing good. Only two singles would be released from this one, and they'd both make a different impact on different charts, different parts of the world. So Say Hello would be a huge hit here in Canada. It still gets played on the radio all the time. Um, it reached number 34. like to rock would find a larger success internationally for the band it reached number 86 in the u.s and number 41 in the uk success in the UK might be because Goodwin decided to pay tribute to the Beatles and the Rolling Stones in the song's final verse, as you can hear the guitar riff for both Day Tripper and I Can't Get No Satisfaction played simultaneously, yeah. so a little nod to the British invasion. Apparently when um, they play it live, the, they'll, they'll actually do that too, it's not just something for the production, they'll just do like a little solo and both guys yeah. ripping it, so apparently it's a good like little live thing for the fans, it, I like that. It's... A cool little feature, and you've heard bands, you know, like, you know, we did when we did Marianne's Trench a couple weeks ago, how they put in like the strings for Call Me Maybe. Yeah, yeah. Like mentioned Call Me Maybe and stuff. That's something that goes back forever, little allusions to other tunes on the charts, but I've never heard it done simultaneously yeah. like that before. Yeah, that's a cool little, uh, cool little Easter egg almost in the song. Um, I Like to Rock has become very highly regarded in decades since its release, with VH1 in the U.S. naming it the 93rd greatest rock song of all time. Wow. And the CBC actually had it as the 33rd greatest Canadian song of all time. So the critics certainly like that tune. Yeah, that's great. I wasn't as hot on this album, though. No? No. Um, got a little repetitive for me. I guess. I really like you Tonight know? and Ladies Man, and I thought they're... Those are the exact two deep cuts I had written down <laughs> as well. <laughs> and I thought their cover of 21st Century Schizoid Man it was good, but I'd still take the King Crimson version. Oh, I forgot to mention that's a King Crimson. Ah! I knew it was Super Jam Bandy, and I, it was there, and I read it, and I forgot about it, and yes, it is a King Crimson cover. No, I thought that that was the best track on the album. 
That's really? how you close an album I wrote. Oh, oh yeah, the, I loved it. Yeah, the uh, like when they do the, the the long solos, it's great. And it just goes oh, yeah. and ends it very strong. I'm just saying, I'd still take the King Crimson version, but it's it's a good cover. I'm not saying it's bad. It's it's a, and it's a great closer. Yeah. And I, I wrote there's nothing bad on here, but I've I've listened to eight albums of theirs, right? Yeah. And from the weird to the, you know, the rookies, they're just starting off, towns that are hit machines, to so this, that, and the other. This one just didn't feel like anything new. And we do reach that point. We did it with, with these two-part episodes, where we had it with Sloan, and we had it with Blue Rodeo, where you'll just get to that point with a band, especially a band that's got a big discography, where you'll think, do they have any more gas left in the tank? You know? Yeah. Apparently, after this, they have eight albums left of the tank, <laughs> so I think, they've got more coming. I think the only problem, too, is, um, I mean, I know we weren't alive in the late 70s, but also when you go back, you know, we have the advantage of looking at things through perspective. And when you look at the 70s, that, that type of hard rock, prog rock, all these things was so saturated by that point that a lot of things started to sound the same. And so maybe it's one of those things, maybe that sound was a little played out, so maybe they change it up in the 80s, we'll have to wait and see. But, uh, so maybe that's why it didn't feel as good for you, because it wasn't fresh. Plus, if you're looking at any of these other bands at the time, it was the same thing. It was kind of just like, a lot of the same. Yeah, it was. It was. Um, But I kind of maybe expected more from Miles Goodwin than to just fall into that trap. Uh, well, I mean, there's that. He's a creative. He's a creative guy, and he's not he very much not afraid to take risks. Um, yeah. And maybe I wanted to take a risk or two here on this album, because once I totally forgot that 21st uh, Century Schizoid Band was a cover. Yeah. I kind of let down a little bit now that I remembered that. Oh, now you reminded me of that, and I'm like, yeah, yeah, the best song of the album is a cover. Well, also, I mean, you got to remember, like, I'm trying to think of when, the, I'm, I'm just looking up when 21st Century Schizoid Man came out. Oh, it came out in 69, never mind. I, th- I thought it was a more relatively newer song that they covered, so I thought that was a, a risk, but never mind. Yeah. It's been around for, like, yep. almost 10 years, 15 years. <laughs> it's still relatively recent I guess. to do a cover of it, you know what I mean? Like, I remember about two, three years ago, there was like this really kind of like slow pop cover of You Only Get What You Give by New Radicals that had hit the airwaves. Yeah. And I thought that was like too recent. I was like, it's way too recent to do a cover of this. Well, I mean. And that was like 15 years, so. When you think about the Stones and the Beatles, like if they were doing like a cover of like a Chuck Berry or a Buddy Holly or the Beatles doing some like blues covers, you know, they were around in like the 60s. That stuff was in, it's like the same time as covering something that was in the 40s. It feels, oh, yeah. it feels yeah. long ago, but it's, it's like, or it doesn't feel that long, but it, it's been like almost two decades. Yeah. Well, uh, what's it called? Like New Radicals it, came it, out in like time. 97, 98. It's been 20, 99, 99. Okay. So it's been 21, 22 years. Yeah. It's been a while. So long, I mean, you know, it, was, it was prime for the taking. I'm just, I'm just talking like, I, I'm just old and time goes by differently for me. That's basically it. And you know what? I know that back in the day, well, we did the Amanda Marshall uh, episode. We talked about how Dark Horse, her version of Dark Horse, was on the charts at the same time that that country singer had put her version out. You know? Well, I remember one uh... year at the Grammys, 
Um, two versions of How Do I Live, Leanne Rimes and Trisha Yearwood's version, were nominated for the same award against each other. So, like, it happens. Well, you know? Even, um, what's his nuts? Darius Rucker's cover of Wagon Wheel wasn't that long from the original. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, how about the White Stripes and Walking with a Ghost? That was, like, what, a year after Tegan and Sarah had released it? I don't know, actually. Uh, they get they have had people come up to them like we really like what you do with that white stripe song, like thanks we wrote it. <laughs> <laughs> Here's a quarter. Get yourself some musical education. Well, before we wrap things up this week, you may have noticed that I didn't mention I did have my one thing where I said the Junos were weird when we were talking about the Forever for Now album. Yeah. Uh, but I didn't mention the Juno Awards at all. Yeah. And I'm probably not going to throughout this because despite being nominated 11 times for Juno Awards, April Wine has never won. Oh. Yeah. I mean, not a single win. Okay. How Can is, you believe that? How is Tonight is a Wonderful Night not nominated for Song of the Year? That song is amazing. Well, I didn't say it wasn't nominated. Or sorry, how They've did, gotten how did, 11 nominations, but they haven't won anything. How did, like, I'd like to see what it lost to. Because some, I don't even know if it was nominated, Brian. It's because these these award shows are so short-sighted. Yeah. There, tonight is a wonderful time. Hold on, I'll get to the year. I did all this out as I scramble through my notes. Okay, this was on Stand Back, uh, 1975, so check the 76 Juno Awards. Because the Juno Awards only started as an official ceremony in 1970. All right, let's see here. Juno Awards, 1976. Yeah, motherfuckers. Female vocalist of the year, don't give a shit. It's Joni Mitchell, but... Wow, that's pretty deserving. Yeah. <laughs> What I'm fine with Jody. Jody can win all the awards of the world. Okay, best-selling single. Let's see. Ooh, you ain't seen nothing yet. That was huge. Best international single. Level keep us together, Captain and Teddy. <laughs> <laughs> see, it's just, it's just based on sales. Yeah, yeah. And it was yeah. It's just um. Like, they didn't even really have... Like, they had a promising group of the year, group of the year, male vocalist of the year. They didn't like, They didn't have, like, a rock category by the looks of it here, so... Yeah. And, so it, would and expand, it was all and just, BTO all the time, so... Yeah. So it would expand as it went, and it was up against some stiff competition in BTO, and BTO had the, you know, the uh, basically the, the, the prominence of being an offshoot of the Guess Who that helped them with the critics, yeah. who sometimes don't even listen to the albums that they're presented with. Yeah, I know. They're just like, oh, this is... But also, it's uh, it's not... Um, it's not Burton Cummings. It's Randy Bachman. I don't know who the better yeah. of the two is. I'd, I'd probably... Burton! Yeah, I know. Kidding me? That's what I was going to say, too. It's not even close. Who am I kidding? <laughs> Vern <laughs> Cummings is phenomenal. I mean, the, guy, the guy wrote Randy, these eyes Randy. when he Randy was like Bachman's 19. Fine. 
Yeah, Randy Bachman's fine, but he's just he, 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 he just sounds like a guy singing in a bar compared to yeah. comics. Oh yeah, he yeah. Uh, he wrote these eyes when he was like nineteen years old. That's nuts. Yeah, you ever hear him break out that like jazz flute? Oh, love it. All right, that does it for uh, part one. <laughs> partially because the script is over, and partially because I gotta take a shit like a mother. Me too. I've been holding uh, it in since we started. <laughs> All right, we're shit buddies. There we go. <laughs> what a great way to end an episode. Um, <laughs> we'll be back next week when we cover the final eight albums of April Wine's career. And uh, follow us on Spotify. Um, leave us a five-star review on uh, Apple Music. You know, the more we talk about shitting, the more I have to shit. <laughs> so uh, what a way to end the episode. What? what, what? No I got zero dignity. Not when I'm holding it in. <laughs> Jeez, prairie dogging it here. Oh my god. All right. <laughs> it's one thing to say you have to use we'll the. It's one thing to say you got to use the can. It's another one to be so graphic. Oh, but the can's so low brow. <laughs> yeah, well, so am I. Use a can. That's true. My grandfather All told right. me when I was sixteen. <laughs> okay, we're both gonna go to the washroom, and we will see you next week with the second half of April Wine's discography. Hope time! <laughs> one, two, one, two. <laughs> Mic check, one, two, one, two. Yeah.